Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Last year was a, by all accounts, at least by all accounts that I've read or heard, last year was a bit of a tough one for the real estate market, largely because of the interest rate increase after interest rate increase after interest rate increase. That spooked a lot of people who were looking to get into the market, which of course, if there are not as many people looking to buy because it's going to cost more to borrow, then the prices dropped a little bit, which seemed like if you could withstand the interest rates, it would have been a really good time to buy if you were trying to get in. Well, now it would appear, again, based on other data and other reports, that those prices are beginning to go up a little bit because the supply is still not great, but the demand is picking up here in the city. I want to bring in Judy Marseilles. She is, uh, you see her signs everywhere and, you know, houses everywhere, realtor here in town. Judy, thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to... Uh, talk to everybody about something I'm passionate about, which is the real estate market. Well, it seems, Judy, that again, last year was a bit of a wild year because of everything that was happening, but it really does seem from everywhere that I'm looking and reading and all these reports that uh, the prices, we're, we're probably heading back to where we were not that long ago with bidding wars everywhere and prices that are going up. I mean, are, is there any reason to think that's not the case? Well, I'm not sure if it would be quite as um, alive as you're suggesting in terms of going forward. There's no question about it. We have seen what we call as a delayed spring market. Uh, there's certainly more energy uh, in the market right now. Um, the one challenge, though, I think that we're facing is that homeowners want the prices that their neighbors got last year. Ah. We're not there. And I'm not sure how long, if we will even get there. But I think the reality is that we're looking at a more stable market because you were quite right. I mean, we went through a year of pretty tough slugging. But, you know, there was a question of whether or not it was basic economic theory of lack of supply. We had a consistent demand, although there was a lot of nervousness around interest rates, no question about that. But now we're seeing people being a little more calm. Um, they're, you know, with a decline in the interest rates marginally, they're more interested. And we've seen certainly an increase in the number of first time home buyers who are feeling a little more confident about the market. And when I looked at the price uh, demand in the marketplace, it was certainly at the lower end and some middle end values of the industry. The upper end of the market is still a little bit slow, and we have not realized the prices we'd achieved um, a while ago. Judy, when, when you say that first-time buyers are feeling a little more confident, I also wonder, Royal LePage came out with a report today anticipating where prices are going to go in the next year or so, and they're looking at a 4.5% increase at least. I'm wondering if it's all confidence for first-time buyers or if they're looking saying, geez, if we're going to do this, we better do it now before this thing takes off again. Well, it's interesting. Obviously, uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but if you know, we have to also look at our area, Hamilton, versus some other areas. What I'm finding right now is when people look at statistical uh, real estate information, 
they don't narrow it down to the relevant information for our area. They may look at national numbers. They may look at all kinds of interesting facts, but we have to look at what is going on in Hamilton. And when I say Hamilton, our entire area covered by our real estate board. And what we're finding right now is that uh, uh, the volume of opportunity with respect to listings is going up marginally from where it was at a very low point, and now we're seeing more interest, uh, but prices are not quite there yet, to be honest with you. As you said a few moments ago with the, um, and, and it's a really interesting thing, and I think it makes a lot of sense uh, when you're saying people aren't, are wanting to get the same price if they're selling that their neighbors did. We had a house on our street that went up for a price that I thought was insane, quite honestly, but it was sort of within, you know, the range of what it was a little while ago, plus a bit, it's been sitting there for months and months and months. It, if you, if you want what people were getting two or three years ago, I expect you're probably going to be sitting there for a while still. Well, exactly. And you identified something that's really interesting. The properties that are not priced within a relative range of value are the properties that are sitting on the market the longest. Right now, pricing is key. And I would strongly recommend anybody who's thinking of selling right now to look at that range of value that's more practical than winning the lottery. Hmm. That's what, I mean, as I say, this neighbor and hope they're not listening, but <laughs> that neighbor, they, they put their house at, at a price that my wife and I just looked at each other and went, what year do they think this is? Because, you know, again, three years ago, maybe when everybody and every house seemed to be in a bidding war, I get it. That might have worked, but now it's, you do have to be a little realistic, don't you? Absolutely. But you know, you touched on another really interesting point. We are starting to see a return to multiple offers on property. and But those multiple offers in terms of what the consumer wants to bid, if you will, are not crazy numbers. What we've seen is that they might be ten or $15,000 more than the list price in some instances. And so people going into multiple offer situations, they, ha- they also have to exercise some care and caution. And make sure they know what they're doing. Um, at the end of the day, our home is where we live. It's where we enjoy life. We don't need to have huge stress <laughs> to mm. deal with in terms of overpriced situations. Has any, and we got to go in a second here, has anything changed in terms, uh, again, a few years ago when we were at the absolute peak, it did not really matter what state your home was in. And, and you know, there were some let's be honest, some dumpy homes that were selling for a lot of money because people were just wanting to get in. I'll fix it for you. Sell it to me and I'll fix it up. Is that still working or, or really is it now a little bit different that a home really does have to look like something to get the same offers? Well, the home today doesn't have to be perfect, but I think it has to be clean, decluttered, and look presentable because, you know, what happened you know, a year and a half ago, is people would buy these homes that needed all the work. And they didn't mind putting the money into it because it was an investment. And they were going to see a return from that investment. We don't know where we're heading right now. 
And, you know, with all the markets changing dramatically, if you look at uh, price points and all of that, and by the way, for anybody listening, if you want any of the statistical information, please send me an email, judy at judymarsales.com. I'm very happy to share all this with you. But again, to your point, Scott, um, you know, I think that the range of value has changed, which then the consumer has to adapt to. So you have to be careful. It is, uh, it's a really interesting one. As I say, Royal LePage saying today, four and a half percent increase, whether that applies here, um, I kind of got to run. I kind of expect that it will because lately anyway, um, anything that's going to be an increase, we seem to get the bulk of it or the brunt of it. So, uh, Judy Marsales, always appreciate you coming and taking a few minutes. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you, Scott, very much. And please feel free to call anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everything is costing us so much more that we're looking for anything that might give us a break. And now we hear a little bit of a, you know, a, a well, there's hope. Let's put it that way. There is hope. I don't know whether it's going to turn out, but Freedom Mobile is the new Pierre Pelado combined cell phone company, and he is planning to undercut the established market as much as 20% less prices for cell phone, as well as other things, more data and more this and more that. Is this finally the thing that is going to get the attention of the established cell phone companies and bring our prices down here in Canada, where we pay among the highest cell phone charges in the world? Marvin Ryder, of course, is with the DeGroote School of Business, who joins us now. Marvin, how are you? I'm just great, thanks. Well, how optimistic are you that Mr. Pelado is going to be the magical elixir that will let us all pay less for our cell phone bills? So, if you don't mind, I'm going to answer your question, but I think for your listeners, we just need to give them a little more context. So, when the Shaw and Rogers uh, merger was proposed nearly two years ago, it got into a lot of rough water, and it looked like it wasn't going to happen for a long time. And it was a year ago, roughly a year ago, that this strange side deal got into the equation. Okay, Rogers, you're going to acquire, you're the big guy, you're going to acquire the number four company, Shaw, but you're going to spin off Freedom Mobile. This was Shaw's um, cellular phone group. We're going to spin that off and sell them to Videotron, a company that most people outside of Quebec had never heard of. It's owned by this uh, Monsieur Pelido, um, and they are going to then offer cell phone service, and we're not going to lose a fourth competitor. We're just going to switch it from Shaw to Videotron. So that was thrown out, and that seemed to make people a little happier. And then the federal government got involved, and Minister Champagne, who ultimately had to approve this, said, well, I like this idea that we haven't lost a competitor, but, you know, if they just do business as usual, how is that going to help us? So he put a couple of restrictions on the deal aimed strictly at Videotron. Number one, okay, if you wind up with these customers, you can't turn around and flip them a year later or two years later. You've got to commit to keeping these customers and serving them for at least 10 years, 10 years. You're not going to be some fly-by-night. And number two, you've got to commit to take the prices that you are well-known for in Quebec, and those prices typically 20% lower 
than the other companies, you're going to have to then offer those to your customers outside of Quebec. So that would be to places like Ontario and Alberta, and hopefully you'll be getting a footprint in Manitoba and what have you. So this all was approved by the federal government. We're now finally seeing the deal start to come fruition. And yes, in these very, very early days, this all is starting to happen just over the last 10 days. Uh, Monsieur Pelladeau has been visiting the operations outside of Quebec, you know, meeting the troops, charging them up, uh, so on and so forth. And he held a press conference in which he proudly said, okay, we, we're going to be here. We're going to be this disruptor. We're going to give you those lower prices and we're going to make the big guys weep. And I think that's great. Uh, clearly, uh, he needs to say those things because the federal government also put into the deal that there would be penalties up to $25 million a year, and those could be accumulated over eight years to a maximum of $200 million if you don't do what we've asked you to do. So it wasn't just a best efforts promise. There are hooks involved to make sure it happens. And I think, to your point, as, as people who have been struggling with cell phone rates, we would be thrilled if we had an aggressive competitor, a price-sensitive competitor. I think most of us don't view any significant difference in the service. In other words, we see this like a commodity. One cell phone and bandwidth is like the next cell phone and bandwidth. So give us a better deal on this. And so far, that's what Mr. Pelledo is saying. And do you think, I mean, we don't know, we don't have a crystal ball, but do, do you see that there is a chance that the other big companies do flinch here a little bit and do say we'd better pull back a little bit because otherwise he's going to eat our breakfast? Well, two aspects of that. First, uh, and I know this, you're probably going to jump up and down and, and say I've got this wrong, but Stats Canada, who tracks things like cell phone rates, have actually said over the last two years, cell phone rates have come down a little. They have been going in the right direction if I'm a consumer. So they're already you're seeing the big guys saying, okay, we've got to be a little better on price. This should accelerate that. Now, the question is, um, how are the existing customers of Freedom Mobile? Three and a half million people have their cell phones through Freedom Mobile. Now you've just been told there's going to be an ownership change. Yes, an ownership change that should bring some of your prices down, but are you comfortable with that, or are you going to use this as your excuse to say, well, I guess if they're changing owners, I'm going to go to Bell, or I'm going to go to TELUS, or I'm going to go to Rogers. So Mr. Pelido will only succeed if the freedom people who are currently in the network stick with them and say, well, okay, bring it on, let's give you a chance. We don't like the alternative. So I, I think there's a good chance he'll be a thorn in the side. He likes doing that. Uh, I don't, again, know if the average listener knows this, but along with being a businessman, he's a bit like Donald Trump. He had flirted with politics, and he, Mr. Pelado, had actually been the leader of the Parti Québécois yes. in Quebec. And, of course, that's kind of always a position of a lightning rod of, of controversy. So he doesn't mind playing that kind of a role. I, I think it's possible that he's he going to love having the attention in places like Ontario and Manitoba and Alberta, a place that he's never seemed to have been relevant to before, I think he's going to jump up and down. Now, will we give him the chance? That's the part we don't know. There has always been, whenever we've talked in this country about cell phone costs, one of the things that is always said, I hear this all the time, is, well, we have to pay more in this country than in a lot of other places because it's such a big country and to put cell phone towers and to maintain them in the infrastructure, it's naturally going to cost more than if we were living in Liechtenstein or someplace. Yeah. So 
would this, if the amounts do come down, if competition does lead prices to drop, if he manages to get a thorn in the side of these other companies and does get them to drop their prices, is that, does that mean that that story about geography and infrastructure and costs was a bit of a made up thing to protect the prices all along? No. Uh, so you are correct. The argument is that we have this population, and for all intents and purposes, the Canadian population is only in a border of about 500 miles near the American boundary. The problem is, if I'm going to offer cell phone service to Canadians, I've got to go beyond that. And that's where you start getting into the low population density areas. So yes, there has been quite an expense to take cell phone services, not in downtown Toronto or downtown Montreal or, or Hamilton or Vancouver, but to get it to places like Thunder Bay and Sault Ste. Marie. And, and we don't want two-class citizens. You know, if you live in a big city, you get great service. If you live more rural or low density, you get terrible service. So there has been a cost to extend that. But here's the good news. We can now start reaping a return on that investment. In other words, the infrastructure to take you from 4G to 5G is nowhere near the kind of cost that we had to give you the first round of cell phones or to get you to 2G and 3G. So we can take the infrastructure that's already there and upgrade it at a better rate than it was to establish the infrastructure in the first place. So now at last, and that's going to be the argument, by the way, of the three big guys, oh, sure, you enter the market now and you get to piggyback on all the stuff that we've done before and take advantage of it, and they'll try to cry their way to the bank. But I think, again, the rest of us are going to say, well, you, you were able to cash in for a while. Now is the time to bring your prices down. I think we would all hope for that. Uh, I, I will, we'll just see if that works that way. Uh, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know that everyone knows how brilliant he is. His name is Robert Thompson. He's with the Blyer Center for Pop Culture at Syracuse University. How are you tonight? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I am doing really well. Thank you. Tell you why I wanted to have you on. And we... You and I have talked many times over the years, usually about TV and usually about movies and sometime about music. Never about this, though. This week, a guy that I grew up loving his work, a guy named Al Jaffe died. He was a cartoonist for Mad Magazine. He was the guy who, if anyone who ever bought Mad Magazine, he had the fold-in covers on the back that you would fold them and they would make a different picture. Yep. And, and I mean, I don't know, Robert. I, I think that... Mad Magazine for a time, I don't want to say it was the most influential publication for people of a certain age, but I think that anyone who read Mad Magazine, it had an influence on them. And if you talk to almost any comic or people who work in the comedy industry, it seems like everybody read Mad Magazine once upon a time. Well, I was so happy to get uh, your inquiry about this because I am of that certain age. I'm 63 years old, and I would very much, as many, many, many people uh, my age and uh, older and a little bit younger uh, as well, especially in comedy and all kinds of other things, uh, uh, agree that uh, that really formed my political consciousness. I think I first discovered MAD when I was probably in, I don't know, about fifth grade or something like that. And the great thing about it is, it was, your parents didn't know that it was as subversive as it was. I mean, you know, if you got a Playboy magazine, you had to hide it behind your algebra book. <laughs> uh, 
Mad yeah. Magazine, you know, it was right there on the, uh, a matter of fact, I, uh, I would oftentimes get uh, those Mad compilation paperbacks in my Christmas stocking. Uh, uh, so th- the idea was you could, you could read it, and it, was, it really was uh, uh, subversive and some deep parody and everything, um, but you were, you were able to get it in the house without, uh, uh, without confiscation. And they did a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, the parodies of movies, movies I couldn't see because they were R- R-rated movies, I got a pretty good sense of uh, by reading the uh, Mad uh, parodies. And you're right, Al Jaffe's fold-outs and other things, Dave Berg's uh, silly answers to stupid questions, Sergio Argonne's uh-huh. uh, Spy versus Spy, Don Martin's crazy stuff, um, and this was before uh, Saturday Night Live, which I suppose really began to move us into other options for that kind of uh, uh, humor. But uh, Mad Magazine was going strong before there was anything in the real mainstream, certainly television culture, that came even close to this. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, and I hadn't even thought of it. I mean, I, I obviously I and many people listening remember those parodies of TV shows or movies or whatever else, but you're right, probably for an awful lot of kids... It was an introduction to political issues that they didn't even realize they were reading about political issues. Right, and uh, all kinds of them, from you know, from straight political issues to uh, Mad was very anti-tobacco. Uh, matter of fact, I remember one of those fold-ins that uh, I think it looked like a cigarette ad, and it folded into a skull and crossbones or uh, some such things, but. Um, yeah, that's for the movie parodies. I remember. Remember that Art Garfunkel? He was in it. Uh, uh, Carnal Knowledge, it was called. <laughs> okay. I, of course, yeah. couldn't see that. Mad did it as Carnival Knowledge. <laughs> and many, many years later, when uh, I actually saw the movie on a VHS tape, I thought, wow, the Mad parody was a lot better than that movie. I really, I mean, that's one thing that I wish was still around. Uh, one th- one reason I wish Mad was still the same as it was because I, there there have been so many movies since it sort of faded away that I thought this would have been this would have been ideal this would have been so good as a Mad Magazine piece that and I know that you can still go online and still find Mad Magazine and things like that but it just it's not it, clearly there's nothing that is like it and I, I'm guessing that's probably Robert because. In 2023, you could never get away with doing what Mad Magazine did. Well, the other thing, too, I think, is that, uh, and you're right, while it's, I guess it's not in regular publication anymore, but you can still get uh, compilations and special issues. I think they're about to do a big 70th uh, uh, anniversary or something. Matter of fact, I was in a grocery store yesterday and picked up uh, uh, one of these kind of fairly large size, but regular magazine kind of thing, 1495 was the price tag uh, on it. It was wow. maybe, I don't know, 120 pages, something like that. Uh, uh, you can still get it, but it doesn't have, back then, it really was the one of the only places regular people could go to get that kind of thing. Now we've got so much, all the late night shows, uh, all of the um, adult animation stuff, which are doing parody and political stuff very, very well. Uh, uh, it's just um, a thing like a magazine, which itself seems so ye olden days, hmm. uh, people. 
um, I suppose is why MAD really served a uh, an extraordinarily important purpose uh, when it was there, because all these other things like television weren't doing what MAD was doing. No. MAD also ultimately lent its name to MAD TV, uh, one right. of the very things that kind of made it obsolete. But I just, I look at this and I think the way we are now with how easily offended we can be, and then if someone does something that we find offensive, we will crush it and make sure that it is not allowed to exist, it almost seems. Uh, There's going to be at least one thing in every episode, every issue of Mad Magazine, if you go back and look at it, that would have had people on Twitter screaming that this has to be stopped and nobody should be buying this and on and on and on. It, It just seems to me impossible that it could survive now because our sensibilities are so much more fragile. Although I've got a feeling if Mad Magazine were still the force that it once was, uh, Twitter would have been one of its major targets. So, <laughs> yeah, if you remember, Mad, and I, I didn't realize this at the time, I mean, I hadn't really consciously uh, uh, identified it su- as such, but Mad Magazine's real, its kind of basic message was that um, advertising the media, the general kind of uh, 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 culture, um, was corrupt. It was trying to tell, sell us things. It was trying to exploit us in all these different kinds of ways. And Mad constantly was confessing that it was part of that whole thing. Mad Magazine was itself a magazine and a publication and media and all of that. It was like it was self-consciously aware while it was parodying the exploitation of audiences uh, that it was also part of it. But uh, you know, with uh, you know data mining and uh, uh, Twitter and all this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, I imagine uh, Al Jaffe, if he were 20 years old again, would be having a grand old time with all that. And they didn't have, if I recall correctly, and I, boy, I read every single issue. I, I wasn't really paying attention to this part, though. They didn't have any advertising in there, did they? Right. And uh, they were uh, quite uh, conscious and, and proud of that as well. The... Uh, they had their own little things. Uh, matter of fact, one of them I sent away for. They were uh, uh, little mini posters of Alfred E. Newman that you could hang on your wall, which I did with a perverse sense of pride hmm. back in the day. And, because, and... of course, Alfred e. Alfred e. Newman was a kind of poster child yes. for the uh, the unread, the ignorant, the, all of that stuff. And it's amazing. We were talking on the show the other day about the fact that uh, there are lines from Shakespeare that people will use, or from the Bible, that they will use in their everyday life and have no idea where it comes from. Alfred E. Newman's face still pops up in places sometimes, and people know the face, but I wonder how many people, especially younger people, even know where it's from. They just, they, it's something they've seen, they know it, but I don't know that they know where it's from. Yeah, no, that is a good point. And all those quotes you were talking about, people are surprised when they uh, uh, hear them. I have students who, uh, uh, when they hear an original classic rock song, think, oh, I thought that was the Taco Bell commercial <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, um, that's true. So that's true. Although I think with Alfred E. Newman, and I could be wrong about this, but uh, I believe that Al- that image of Alfred E. Newman was circulating before Mad started using it. And it became then fully associated with Mad Magazine. But I don't think that originated Hmm. with that publication. I think they started using it in the mid-1950s, and I think it had been circulating around. I don't know what uh, his origins were or when he was named or any of that, but I think that image of that guy with the uh, David Letterman teeth and all of that was, uh, I think, had already um, 
been around a little bit anyway. Let me let me move from that just a little bit, but to where we started with Al Jaffe, because that's a name. I mean, I knew the name Al Jaffe when I was reading Mad Magazine. Don Martin was my favorite of them. You mentioned Sergio Aragones or Aragonas. And then I started thinking, well, okay, I knew the name Charles M. Schultz, who was, of course, with uh, with Charlie Brown and Peanuts. And I remember Lynn Johnson, who did For Better or For Worse, and Gary Larson, who was, of course, the far side. I, I can oh, yeah. go down a list of people, men and women, who drew cartoons, and we knew the cartoon, and we knew the artist. And I can tell you, honestly, that right now, I don't know that I could name for you one current cartoonist. And I'm wondering what's changed. I mean, I, I know that we don't have nearly as many cartoons. The, 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 the artists have gone, a lot of them to the, um, you know, the things like the Batman cartoon comics or the Superman, like much more realistic kind of things. But what's happened to cartoons? How, how has it changed that, that, that things have changed so much from those days? Well, I think uh, part of it was the cartoonist, and we do have to make a distinction between uh, cartooning now and I think uh, the various things that we call under various titles, graphic novels, yes, uh, yes. manga, all that kind of stuff. So there is certainly a, um, uh, uh, a sense in which graphic art has, of course, been um, uh, is in way better shape than it was back when we were reading Archie and Jughead and all of those uh, kinds of things. I mean, serious graphic artist novels, uh, 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 manga, which, of course, is an enormous uh, uh, industry. If you go into a bookstore, if you've still got one where you live, hmm. um, uh, sections on uh, graphic uh, uh, novels and that kind of thing that, that didn't even exist back in the era of comic books, which were on little stands that you twirl around in the, in the uh, drugstore. So in that sense, what, uh, that kind of graphic art that comics did in a panel or three or four um, in the daily papers and the Sunday papers has been expanded in a very uh, big way. The other thing, I think, of course, is that the comics were very much a print-based thing. You can certainly see a lot of cartoonists uh, uh, online, and some of them are posting stuff almost uh, daily, and some of it is uh, is actually good. Um, but uh, those those Charles Schultz, uh, Gary Trudeau was another yep, Kingsbury, yep. had become the uh, kind of counterculture uh, comic artist. Uh, so those ones you all named were uh, uh, were big ones. And now, I guess the most uh, well known household name cartoonist of the old school. Uh, would probably now be Scott Adams for being in the news for some really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know I mean part of it's interesting that you mentioned what you did and and part of what you explained there because what was coming to my mind first and maybe it's just me being dark and cynical or whatever was that we are more dark and cynical now and we you know once upon cartoons were light and fluffy and upbeat and these graphic novels tend to sometimes be darker and more serious and more menacing i don't know that's maybe too strong a word but it just seems maybe the attitudes towards the reader has changed as well yeah and i think the readers are much more sophisticated though back in the day uh, including william gaines he was part of this whole uh, controversy uh, uh when um I mean, comics, the comic books, certainly not the cartoons in the daily papers by any stretch, but uh, comic books were extraordinarily dark. Uh, before, uh, I mean, one of the biggest uh, uh, attacks, government attacks and everything else on, uh, 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 on 
um, pop culture was against comic books, those horror things, uh, uh, DC and all of that, uh, EC, I mean, uh, and all those comics where the cover would be somebody holding up a severed head and all that uh, kind of thing. Uh, that stuff goes back to, the, uh, back to the 1950s. I remember, though, I don't know what the date was. It's, it's been a long time, but uh, a friend of mine was a friend of Art Spiegelman who did that extraordinary um, graphic novel, Mouse, and mm. part two as well, M-A-U-S. Um, and uh, I think that won a special Pulitzer, or he won a special Pulitzer uh, for it. Um, and I think that was the first time I realized that, you know, I'd grown up with Blondie and Dick Tracy and Peanuts and all that kind of thing, and it occurred to me how, what an extraordinary art form graphic representations in frames could uh, uh, could really be. And, of course, many, many others have discovered that with many, many, many other artists. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, around the same time, and maybe this had something to do, I, mean, I don't think it had anything to do with the demise or the slowdown of Maddox, because they were kind of at the same time. I mean, National Lampoon had figured out to make a magazine. And I always remember that one issue with the, you know, the, the person holding a gun to a dog's head and, you know, buy this issue where the dog yeah. dies. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> could you imagine today putting out a magazine that did that, even though it was all tongue in cheek, people would lose their minds. Well, there's certainly worth stuff on the internet, and I guess that's kind of uh, what National Lampoon, I mean, uh, National Lampoon's place in the cultural space was, I guess, kind of the equivalent of what, what the uh, uh, internet uh, was now. National Lampoon was pretty easy to buy, but it, was, it had a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, subcultural quality to it. Though, I have to say, I used to read National Lampoon in my high school library when I was in study hall, so... Um, we had a uh, uh, high school that was uh, hip enough to, in fact, uh, subscribe and actually wow. pay for the National Lampoon. It is uh, oh, for the good old days. Can you because... imagine how Florida would uh, find a National Lampoon <laughs> in a Florida library today and the place it burned down? I, I think or you someone could... would burn it down. I likely. think you could say that for all 50 states and every province and territory in Canada right now because uh, we all would have, there would be somebody terribly offended by something always. That's that's the, uh, that's, that's the beauty, I guess, of Once Upon a Time and of what Mad Magazine did. Uh, Robert Thompson. As you the... pointed out, though, there were, if you go back to some of those old magazines, there was a lot of offensive stuff in it. There, 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 there was. And, and I mean, it was, it's, I mean, again, maybe memory, maybe just time obscures or maybe as a kid you don't catch it all. It seemed like it was offensive, but in a very tongue-in-cheek, very inoffensive way less than now where some of the stuff is really mean. But may, again, maybe that's just being a kid and you just didn't catch all the yeah. nuance. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Robert Thompson from the Blyer School of uh, Pop Culture down at Syracuse University. Thanks as always for taking time. Really appreciate this. Oh, it's so much fun. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.